We're back speaking today with author, educator, and investigative journalist, James DiEugenio. In, in, your, in your talk in Duquesne, The Death of JFK and the Rise of Neocons, I know near the beginning you, you, you talk about something that's not really well known. The Kennedy was just a, you know, a not very powerful man in the U.S. Senate, but got, got his name before the public when he gave a speech denouncing the French behavior in Algeria and, and, and colonialism in general. Which, which evoked a pushback from the right, but did get him a lot of attention. Yes. That is, if you, well, not many people know about this. In 1957, Kennedy spent the better part of a year researching and writing this speech that he was going to give, I believe, in the summer of 1957. And in it... He essentially said, we should not be backing France, no, no matter what of an ally she has been in the past, in his colonial war against Algeria, all right? Because, as I said earlier, we're going to be on the wrong side of history. How could we possibly forget what just happened three years ago at Dien Bien Phu, where we backed France in a colonial war in Indochina? And we ended up losing. Right. All right. The same thing is going to happen here because the pool of nationalism and independence is too strong. All right. No matter what France does, she's going to be destined to lose. What we should be doing, he said, this was kind of at the end of the speech, he said, we should be escorting France to the negotiating table so they can make an early exit. All right. And secondly, not tear the French nation apart, because that's what was beginning to happen right. over this colonial war. And finally, he said, we should also be doing everything we can to free Africa. Now, you can imagine, <laughs> you know, the ruckus that that speech right. created right. in 1957. Right. They, there were, I believe, off the top of my head, I think there were 140 editorials about that speech. Two-thirds of them were negative. You know, Kennedy was, because he specifically mentioned the vice president of the United States, Richard Nixon. Okay. And so he was attacked by the White House, by, by Nixon, by John Foster Dulles, even Eisenhower. All right. And even Democrats, people in his own party, thought he was too far out there. People like um, Dean Acheson and people like Adlai Stevenson. Right. And remember, Adlai Stevenson was supposed to be the liberal paragon exactly. of the Democratic Party at that time. All right. So Kennedy really got worried, and he called up his father, Joe Kennedy, and said, did I, did I make a mistake? And Joe Kennedy said words to the effect, you don't understand how lucky you are. Six months from now, when this Algeria thing gets even worse, they're going to look upon you as a prophet. And that more or less came true. He was on the cover of Time magazine in about six months, and the story inside was called Man Out Front. And there was a British uh, journalist, Alastair Cook, who said the Republicans don't know what they're doing. By attacking Senator Kennedy... 
they're building him up as the next Democratic candidate for president, huh. which also happened. Right. That also came true. Right. All right. So that speech, that speech was really a kind of marking point because it, it, it defined him before and after. He was kind of a nondescript senator before that. He then became the man to see for all these third world countries and African dignitaries. Okay, he became appointed chairman to the Africa subcommittee and the foreign relations thing. And it really put him out there, you know, um, like I don't think anything else could have done. Right. It's a, it's a, it is a fascinating and little-known episode in, in the history of JFK, and I, I'm glad you brought that to the attention of people in the presentation. Thank you. Um, it, it's, it's a, people talk, there's a great controversy to this day, I, I think, about what would have happened in Vietnam if JFK had lived. And I think that I would, I would join the group that says, I, I think it's pretty likely that he would not have ramped it up. And in support of that, we have the clear evidence that you and others have talked about in the past that Kennedy and I think his brother Bobby went to Vietnam, looked around, really were on the scene evaluating what the hell was, what the situation was, and came away with a very pessimistic view of continued intervention there. Well, this was in the first French colonial war. All right. Um, JFK and his brother visited Saigon and they decided to seek out people that the French did not want them to talk to. Right. Seymour Topping, a journalist, and Edmund Gullion, part of the State Department. They both told him, Topping even more forcefully than his old friend Edmund Gullion, that France is not going to win this war. And the reason being is that Ho Chi Minh had fired up the Viet Minh who would later become the Viet Cong during the, when the United States took the war over, right. to such a point that they would rather die than go back under the yoke of colonialism. You know, France could never win a war of attrition because the home front would not support it. Now, that's exactly what happened to the United States, isn't it? Yes. Okay. The war became a war of attrition in which the home, the home front fell apart. Okay. And so Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy said that those two talks had a very fundamental impact on JFK's thinking as a young man, all right? And they changed his, when I think that you can say that when Kennedy came in, he was a Truman Democrat. But over time, as he studied this phenomenon, okay, in the third world, he went back to Roosevelt and studied in that year-long research he did. Okay, that was one of the things he did. He went back to Roosevelt's speech, his speeches about this, and what he really felt about what should happen after World War II in the Third World. Well, I have to contrast that with uh, what Daniel Ellsberg had to say about when he was over there as a— um, uh, I guess I'm not sure whether he was a Rand guy or whether he was officially he was an official Pentagon uh, liaison, I think, to some of those operations. Richard Nixon came to pay a visit to Vietnam, and Ellsberg, I think, pointed out to him, oh, yes, they're about to hold an election here, to which Nixon responded with, well, when you have an election, you better make sure you win. <laughs> 
Which that you know, a, a lot of people, even people who wrote books about Nixon that were rather sympathetic, like Ambrose. Okay, mm-hmm. he even said that Nixon was around the bend on Vietnam. Okay, he was really kind of out there. He was really kind of wild, you know. And I, I kind of agree with that, you know, that, that he simply he simply could not be trusted because, you know, if you take a look at it, he was part of the major players who set up this this phony country of South Vietnam. Right. You know, with this capital at Saigon and brought in the DM family, which, right. to put it mildly, was a very bad choice, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, to go up against Ho Chi Minh. Right. Well, let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about Nixon and, and Vietnam, which is a perfect segue into the man that just died recently, Henry Kissinger. I have to laugh at the the headline that they that they describe in Rolling Stone, which is Henry Kissinger, war criminal beloved by America's ruling class, finally <laughs> dies. <laughs> that about sums it up, doesn't it? It does for me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. let's, let's, let's talk about how, here's Nixon, he doesn't understand Vietnam as well as he should. He becomes the president. Well, actually, let's even start before he becomes the president. Let's go back to the fall of 1968. Hubert Humphrey's running against Nixon for president. Lyndon Johnson would desperately like to get Humphrey in the White House because then he can control Humphrey and still, in essence, become president. But... There's, he's desperate to get some sort of agreement about the war. And who gets tapped as part of the U.S. Uh, contingent to go over and talk about all this? Well, an academic from Harvard named Henry Kissinger. Kissinger goes over to Vietnam to take part in these, peace, these so-called peace feelers. And, well, pick up the story. What, what happens when Kissinger goes over there and uh, doesn't promote peace the way we would hope? Well... Kissinger was tapped by Nixon, okay, to be his national security advisor, all right? And Johnson had tried to set up peace negotiations, all right, which Nixon deep-sixed through a woman named Chenault. Right. Okay, all right. And they deliberately, deliberately talked President Chu who was the president of South Vietnam at that time, to back out of the peace negotiations. And Johnson was livid about this, because Wait. this is what he wanted to do once well, he left office, he lo- begin these peace negotiations. He looked at it as treason, uh, and isn't it that? <laughs> yes, yes, that's what he did. And he, he was correct on that, all right? Uh, but... He decided not to go public with it. Right. And he left it up to Humphrey if he wanted to go public with it. Right. But Humphrey decided not to go public with it. All right. But it should have been made public at the time. Because what Nixon and Kissinger were doing was deliberately extending the war, okay, beyond 1968, even though, even though they knew how bad it was. They really knew how bad it was, what it would take if the United States was going to win. Okay, and what it would have taken was was completely outrageous. Okay, the plan that Nixon had assembled, Operation Duck Hook, which only like five people knew about, and the whole one of them being Kissinger. All right, you know, and the 
anti-war demonstrations ramped up at about the time that plan was putting together, and that's why it didn't go through. But Kissinger then was supposed to be the main guy to lead the negotiations to finally end the war, which was about 1971-1972. Now, one of the worst things about this whole prelude is that they knew that there was no chance that South Vietnam would survive after the Americans left. Right. Okay. And they deliberately decided, but we have to continue the war until after the election of 1972 so we can avoid embarrassing questions. We can't leave before 1972. All right? Because people will say, well, why'd you stay in for three years if you knew you were going to lose? All right? So they deliberately stayed in the war till after 1972, knowing that South Vietnam was not going to survive. And Kissinger used to, and Nixon used to joke about this in the White House, because we finally have the tapes now, <laughs> all right, that, that, that they knew that there was going to be no elections, that there would be no survival, that Saigon would fall after the Americans left. It was just a matter of how long. Right. They wanted it to survive like a year or two so that the, the loss could be blamed on Saigon and not on Nixon. It's one of the most terrible, th well, if you want to talk about terrible things, there's also what they did to Cambodia. You know, well, they let's, sacrificed let's, let's, let's a whole independent that. country. Let's talk about okay. this. Nixon, op Nixon goaded, constantly goaded by Henry Kissinger to be tough, Mr. President, launches, right. uh, launches a bombing campaign on the two neighboring countries, and then they disguise the fact that they're not actually bombing South Vietnam or, I guess, North Vietnam, but they're actually bombing Laos and Cambodia, neighboring countries, right. neutral countries, which is an act of war. I mean, it's just... and, and it, 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 was, it was really shameful, okay? Because what they were going to do was somehow um, ruin the North Vietnamese, their sanctuaries in those two countries, and try to disturb the Ho Chi Minh Trail, okay? But the thing that was so bad about this is that as the bombing began to move the North Vietnamese towards the center of the country, the B-52s continued to bomb them as they moved westward. And so this ended up destabilizing the whole country and the fall of Nordum Sihanouk who was the official leader and who wanted Cambodia to remain a neutral country. Right. All right. And he pleaded with anybody who would listen to him for Nixon to stop this, and they wouldn't. So he was overthrown by General Law Nall. But what happened is that as the bombing and, and they actually invaded Cambodia, right. as that continued, that strengthened the radicals in the country led by Paul Pot called the Khmer Rouge. Right. And so the Khmer Rouge eventually dethroned General Law Nall. And I don't have to tell your listeners what happened to Cambodia once the Khmer Rouge took over. This was probably, I can't think off the top of my head, of a worse genocide after World War II than what happened in the Cambodia. It was something like 2 million people. And those are pretty reliable estimates. Right, right. 
Okay. Right. Two lost million their people. lives due to the ravages of the Khmer of the Khmer Rouge. That's one genocide that Kissinger was involved in. There was also the one in East Pakistan, which eventually became Bangladesh. Yeah, talk about that. That was another one in which Nixon and Kissinger okayed the West Pakistani invasion of East Pakistan. Okay, because they, they wanted to get rid of the Hindus, okay, and also um, th- that was what the, the, um, the West Pakistanis wanted to do. But Nixon and Kissinger did not want to intervene because they favored Pakistan over India in that dispute. That one left about 300,000 people dead. So we're up to now 2.3 million. And then there's the one in East Timor, okay, which this time Kissinger with Gerald Ford okayed Suharto's. In fact, he invaded the day after they left. Ford and Kissinger were visiting Jakarta. Okay. What a coincidence. The day after they leave, right. Suharto goes ahead and invades East Timor, which was, been, was a newly freed former colony of Portugal. Right. All right. And so in that one, that was about 200,000. So Henry Kissinger was right there. You, you're up to about 2.5 million. All right. And that's why Greg Gandon, who's a professor at Yale, says if you add it all up, including Latin America, okay, um, it's probably close to 3 million people. That, and that's why I have my sub-stack, my title is Henry Kissinger, The Passing of Dr. Death. Right. Okay. Right. Well, well, compare – we all, we all are – I think the public is somewhat fascinated by the horror of you know, uh, people who engage in serial killing, and uh, you know, they may have a death toll of, in the tens, but – as <laughs> compared to this, uh, you know, and and it's so unbelievable because they were holding this guy up. If you remember, back in his heyday, which would be the seventies and the eighties. Oh yeah, he's they a, were holding him oh, up yeah. as a model. Oh yeah, you know, of a foreign policy intellectual. A genius. And the only yeah. way that Kissinger got away with that is because Nixon refused to declassify his tapes. Or papers, so we couldn't see what they were talking about or writing about, and, and and Nixon did that, by the way, until his dying breath, literally, till 1994. He hired a fleet of lawyers not to declassify his, and now we know why, because we found out all this terrible stuff. And by the way, and Kissinger actually told Haldeman this, if you can believe it. It's I think it's in the Haldeman diaries. Kissinger said to Bob Haldeman, history will not look kindly on us. We sat there and we watched Nixon go into his rages, you know, on each one of these topics. You know, when this stuff gets out, we're going to be frowned upon. Well, that's an understatement, okay? Because not only did did Nixon have an irrational side, but Kissinger actually encouraged it. Oh, many, yeah. Many times. I think he played him like a violin. <laughs> I mean, he yeah, just... Well, that's exactly what I wrote. He played him like a fiddle. <laughs> All right? You know? Well, you and know... It, it was... Yeah. It's really sickening to think of Ted Koppel, if you remember, those heyday of... of uh, what was that show? Nightline? Okay, ABC's Nightline. He must have had Kissinger on there like at least 11 times. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. 
Well, and something that we were going to make mention of on this show uh, that we didn't do an adequate job was that we just passed the 50th anniversary of the events that took place down in Chile, which what which had the fingers of Henry Kissinger all over them. Right. And that one, and that one, if you recall, Kissinger made the classic quote during one, I think it was an NSC meeting, of, about Allende coming to power. Yes. Down in Chile. Yes. He said, he said and, and by the way, this has never been denied, okay? He said, words of the effect, I don't see why we have to sit by and watch a country go communist just because of the irresponsibility of its own citizens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's world class. <laughs> yeah. And so, so much for America promoting democracy throughout the world, right? And so they were determined to stop Allende from taking power, except they couldn't, even though even though they assassinated the general, Rene Schneider, okay, because he refused to go along with a plot to get rid of Allende. Right. So first they got rid of Rene Schneider, all right? And then when Allende took power, they thought they could impeach him. But they couldn't. They didn't have the votes to impeach him, even though they were spending millions of dollars down there in Chile to go ahead and get rid of him. So then they operated on what they called the second option, which was the military overthrow. Right. So they closed down the country for like a week so nothing could get out. And they started bombing the palace and taking all the dissidents into stadiums. And finally, they got rid of Allende. There's still a debate whether Allende was murdered or whether he took his own life. But that's, and then, of course, tens of thousands of people were either killed as they call it, disappeared, you know, or tortured afterwards. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We look forward to having Jim return to this program in the near future, which I'm sure he will do.